Let's get back to Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. Without further ado, let's get to an interview I did with former San Francisco 49er Randy Cross. I see that uh, you grew up in California. Was USC after you too back then, or was it just basically UCLA? Uh, yeah, SC was after me. I, I I was lucky as a you know high schooler. I I played football and through the shot put, so I had a lot of schools that were after me for both track and field and and football. SC was UCLA wanted me for both. SC wanted me for just football. So then it was an easy decision, knowing that how much you love track and field. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, there were a few other schools out there that were willing to you know like. Nebraska wanted me for just football, and Alabama was willing to let me do both, as was Texas. So when you joined UCLA, what was it like on campus? Um, well, I mean, it's one of my favorite times of my life was that, that initial, I guess, year and a half or so that I that I thankfully survived. I mean, I had spent four years at a Catholic all-boys high school, and to go from Crespi Carmelite High School in Encino, California, to UCLA and Bruin Walk was a severe shock to my system. Um, there were more, you know, girls in shorts and, you know, sunbathing out on the grass. And, you know, this was 1972 or so. So it was, it was a fun time. It was, it was a great place. You know, it was in the, we won the NCAAs three of the four years I was there in basketball. So, you know, athletically, it was a pretty amazing place to be around and, you know, two years of Pepper Rogers was were always entertaining. I did the same thing. I went to Catholic All Boys High School, and when I went to college, everybody said, "Why do you want to sit around all girls?" I said, "I'm sick of being around guys all the time." Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, when I told my dad when he told me I was going to go to the All Boys High School, I said, "You know, I don't want to be a priest." You know, Dad. <laughs> and Dad, and my dad just looked at me and says, "That in the point, son." <laughs> exactly. Was uh, football basically taking a back seat at that time to basketball at UCLA? Um, I guess you could say that. I mean, um, there had been a time, you know, in the in the late mid to late sixties, where you know at UCLA it was uh, pretty much an accepted thing. Football was huge, but John Wooden and basketball, I mean, they were going through a spurt where they won the NCAA championship 10 of the 12 years through that whole period so you know it was hard not to take a back seat um i think once tommy pro throw left um pepper came in there and he had a couple of years where you know didn't win immediately i think it really brought fo- football back though just as they were finishing up that streak of winning uh when dick Vermeil came in there for a couple of years and caused a lot of excitement what was Coach Vermeil like? The best, the best. I mean, just you know, he he and his he and his wife were fantastic. Carol was, they were great to every recruit, every guy that was lucky enough to play for Dick. I mean, he remembers you to this day. Um, just a you know, one of the great pleasures. I've been lucky enough to be around some some great coaches through my through my sporting life. So uh, he's, he's one of the, one of the ones that's pretty, pretty high on the list. And ironically, he and guys like Bill Walsh and Terry Donahue and, and a few others have got a pretty good background together. What was it like playing Ohio State in that Rose Bowl in 76? 
It was it was very very nice. Um, we had lost earlier in the year to that same team. I mean, badly. I think it was like forty two twenty one. Um, and so when we beat SC and won, you know, we were co champs, but we had beaten Cal. So we went to the Rose Bowl, and you know it was it was almost an assumptive thing that you know the Bruin, little Bruin team didn't have any chance. And I want to say we were. To put it nicely, a prohibitive favor, easy double digits. Um, and we pulled it off a, a great win. Wendell Tyler, John Shara, Cliff Fraser, some, some great guys, great Bruins. And, you know, it's a, it's a game I'll never forget athletically. Did you know the 49ers were going to draft you when you came out? I, I didn't even know I was going to play pro football until, I guess, the end of spring practice, my junior year. You know, we had the, I guess they call it senior day or whatnot, where back then that was kind of the on-campus workout for the guys that were going to be going in the draft, so all the guys that were seniors. Um, it was actually before spring ball started. You ran 40s and you ran drills and agility stuff and whatnot, and they got your height and your weight and whatnot. So, you know, the, the rising seniors and the current seniors would work out for the NFL guys, and I had an, an old scout for the Dallas Cowboys, actually a former Niner coach named Red Hickey that, you know, pulled me aside and, you know, he wanted to give me that what was kind of an infamous IQ test thing, the, the wonder lick, I guess the early years of Dallas Cowboys. And so I did it. I sat in the stands in Poly Pavilion and did the test and I got done and I said, there you go. And he tells me, he goes, you know, you're going to get drafted kind of early next year in the draft. And I kind of laughed and looked at him and said, oh, yeah, really? And he says, no, I'm not kidding. You're going to get drafted pretty early. And I had never seriously given it much thought. When the 49ers drafted you, I know the draft's different than it was today. I mean, a lot of times you just got a phone call from a scout saying you're drafted. Back in the day, they found out the next day in the paper. How did you find out? Um, actually, I had been called. I was a pretty typical, I, though I was born in New York, I had grown up in L.A. and um, I was pretty much an L.A. kid, and I'd never really been around the snow much or anything else. I got called by the Cleveland Browns in the, like, around the 24th, 23rd, 24th pick of the first round. They told me they were going to draft me. And the guy that was a line coach was a guy named Rod Humanick, who had been the head coach at Cal State Northridge. And he called me and said, you know, hey, we're, we're, the, we're the Cleveland Browns, and Randy, we're thinking about picking you. And I went, oh, okay. He goes, how do you feel? What would you feel about being a Cleveland Brown? And I said, Cleveland, like Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what they wanted to hear. <laughs> that cost you a little money, I'm sure. Yeah, a little bit. That's the difference between going uh, 23rd, 24th, or 42nd, I think it was. When you went to the 49ers, I mean, they had had their troubles over the years. I mean, since they had the million dollar backfield, what was that organization like when you joined it? They were a family. You know, it was the Morabitos on the team then. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until after my first year that they, that the team was sold to Eddie DeBartolo. And it, it was a very much a, a family run, smaller organization. Um, they, they, they hired Monty Clark, the offensive line coach for Don Shulis, great teams at Miami. And, uh, yeah, it was it was an exciting thing for me. I, I didn't know much about the 49ers. My dad had been kind of a Niner fan by virtue of, you know, being discharged from the Marines after World War II and 
seeing some of the early years of Frankie Albert and them, but you know, it's uh they were they were just coming off some very strong years. So it was a team that was full of great talent, specifically on defense, and they made a trade for Jim Plunkett where they gave up their first pick. So uh, that's why I was their first selection of the draft, but it wasn't until the second round. The Dolphins, a lot of them credit Matty Clark for the success of that team. They said he came there and he put that line together and he knew what he was doing. Did he help you that much? Uh, yeah, I was under around him a year. I think he, I got to say he did. I was really lucky. A lot of it was motivation for me. And, uh, you know, I, he was a little bit, he was an influence, put it that way. He he sat me down and, and told me I was going to wear 62 like uh, Jim Langer. And uh, I went, okay, <laughs> that sounds good, I guess. I'm just happy to be here. And uh, he wanted all his linemen about 250, so we weren't really big. And, and you know, I think he was such – I had come from a place like UCLA where it was all about technique, not necessarily all about, you know, girth and strength and whatnot, so it was a good mix for me. How did it change when uh, the DiBartolo family took over? Well, early on, you know, it, and it kind of got forgotten, but Eddie would be the first guy to tell you that, it, you know, he kind of found his found his legs about him. He brought Joe Thomas in, and, you know, my, I, Monty Clark was my coach my first year. Uh, my second year, my coach was a guy by the name of Kenny Meyer, who was a longtime assistant, quarterback guru type guy. Third year uh, under um, Joe Thomas, the Beginning of the coach, beginning of the year, the coach, um, was, was, uh, God, what's his name? Pete McCauley. And then he got fired after the ninth game and Fred O'Connor was the head coach. And I think when he finally took some advice from friends and people that he had known, not only around the league, but also in the Bay Area to, you know, let somebody that's been in the NFL that, you know, really knows what he's doing take over. And, you know, let him do this for you. And that's when they hired Bill Walsh. So Bill was my fifth head coach in four years. So I, I wasn't, a, I was a little skeptical. I was like everybody else around there that we all figured we'd just outlast Bill. What made Bill so successful? Um, besides the obvious, you know, I think it wasn't until after he had passed away and been gone for a while that people really looked back and saw not only from a football sense, um, because, you know, heck, when he, when he passed away, it had been a good while since he coached. They, people were still running his offense, still running his plays, still the, his management and organization building themes and books were still like a Bible for people. Um, it's a little simplistic to say he was an unbelievable coach and a great offensive mind because that would only be encapsulating a small part, I think, of you know, what what made him, you know, one of the major forces in the history of the league. Teams today, I mean, they always talk about, oh, this coach, this coach, but it seems like organizations do win championships because when you talk to former 49ers, Cowboys, Raiders, they love those organizations because they said the way they were treated. And from every 49er says they were treated like royalty. Did you feel that way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Eddie DeBarlow believed in you know, it was a very simple code. He had learned it from his dad in the corporation, you know, in the company. You you paid people, you paid them the best. 
Um, and as a result, that's the kind of, that's the kind of results you expected. And you knew and you understood if the results weren't as special as your pay, there would be ramifications. But it seemed like he never interfered with Coach Walsh, though, like other coaches or owners might do, like a Jimmy Johnson, or I mean, a Jerry Jones. I mean, he let mm-hmm. Coach Walsh run the organization. Yeah, no, he really did. He really did. But like I said, you know, it's, and it was it was true of you know Bill and I, I think a lot of a lot of people around that building. Those expectations have a whole different weight to them, um, and that kind of wears you out after a while. And you saw Bill coach for 10 years. Uh, we won three Super Bowls under him, did a lot of winning. They won it the year after he left again. Uh, and then won another one later when basically his effects and his work as both, you know, in the front office and behind the scenes was still being felt. But, you know, it was a, a pretty grating experience from the inside out. So I wouldn't trade that whole experience for anything in the world, but, you know, it was something you had to appreciate because, you know, how many teams really set their goals? Everybody says they do. But, you know, that was a team where when you lost the NFC championship or you lost in the divisional round, your entire year was a complete failure. When Joe Montana took over as quarterback, did you realize how special he was? Yeah, I think so. You know, Dave, I think we, we knew that from the jump. Uh, we knew that in 79, you know, we weren't all exactly, you know, unbelievable personnel evaluators, but it didn't take a genius <laughs> to look at Joe and see the way he ran that offense and to see the, the, just sort of the symmetry between his skills and what Bill wanted and to know that that was going to be a, a match made in heaven. Roger Craig takes a lot of credit for Jerry Rice becoming the player he was. He said they took Jerry under their ring, under their uh, wing, and trained him the way they trained, like running up hills and stuff like that. Did they ever tell the offensive lineman, we want you guys to train with us? Um, they might have invited us. I don't remember that. I don't remember any of us volunteering for that. <laughs> <laughs> they had a whole different idea of what being in shape was. We wanted to lift weights and and work on splints and work on short bursts and things like that and knock around sleds. And they wanted to run fire trails and run, run, you know, 220, 200 meters and 400 meters. And that wasn't exactly our cup of tea. Jerry Rice, I mean, you're blacking for Wendell Tyler, then Roger Craig. And, I mean, you had Joe Montana, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Jerry Rice, one of the greatest receivers. It had to be hard to lose with that much talent. Um, well, God knows there's enough teams, teams around now that have some pretty unbelievable talent that don't win the Super Bowl. Um, and there were, there were teams that, you know, I can look back at those whole, those great bear teams that still only managed to win one title, which to me is incredible for the amount of talent they had. So it wasn't all about the talent, you know, and the AFC was full of really good teams. So was the NFC. I, I think the difference is how you, I guess, how you cement that team together, how that individual becomes, you know, 11 people become one thing on offense and one thing on defense, and an entire team and organization becomes set. And that, that's those organizational skills I was telling you about with Bill Walsh. 
I mean, being from Chicago, I think the problem with the Bears was is when they let Buddy Ryan go, when Buddy went to the Eagles, that organization, the defense kind of lost some of the structure. I mean, they still had the players, but again, the structure wasn't there. Buddy Ryan had those guys attacking. And Coach Ditka wasn't a great mind, uh, basically, thinker. He was just a motivator. Right, right. And that's, that, you know, that was part of, in that particular case, that was part of the problem. And everybody that you can think of from a team standpoint, whether it was the, the great Charger teams, um, you know, go down the list, there were coaches and there were people that, that couldn't make that much of a difference. You know, Mike Dick was a great player. Mike Dick was an excellent coach. But, you know, that's what Bill was able to do was the whole package. And, you know, that's the difference between the Shulas and the, and the Joe Gibbs and the Bill Walsh and the Bill Parcells and, and people like that. Who was your biggest rival when you played? Which team? Um, probably the Rams, I would think. You know, maybe, you know, maybe the Cowboys, uh, eventually, you know, we, we had a, a, a decent little rivalry with them. Um, but you know, it was probably the Rams within division. Remember, that's back in the days when the NFL was relatively geographically impaired. Right. So, you know, the, the West was the, uh, LA Rams, the San Francisco 49ers, the Atlanta Falcons, and the New Orleans Saints for some obtuse <laughs> reason. Did you have a Super Bowl that stood out as your favorite? Not really. I tell people all the time, I mean, I've got three kids. Uh, too, and it's it's kind of like picking out your favorite kid. Each one's got its it stands alone, you know, as being special. I mean, the first one was an amazing experience. Um, we were kind of the happy dummies. There wasn't all that much pressure on us at that time. Um, we won our Super Bowl, and a lot of us kind of lost our mind for a year or two. <laughs> but, but, you know, the second one was the best team I ever played on in 84. Uh, when we beat Marino and the Dolphins in the Super Bowl at Stanford, that was something else. You know, that's a team that I always cherish pretty highly. And then my last year was a really unlikely Super Bowl. Though, the, you know, the 89 team that won it that year after I retired um, is arguably one of the better Niner teams ever. But, you know, the 88 team, we were 6-5 and five after 11 games. They were talking about, you know, getting rid of the coach, making changes, getting rid of a lot of us. And somehow, some way, we managed to finish the right way and win the Super Bowl. So trying to differentiate for me is pretty tough. Did a Super Bowl 19, when you got to play at Stanford, did you think that having almost the home field advantage helped you in that Super Bowl? Uh, I thought it was a disadvantage, personally. Um, you know, because pe- people talk about all the time when you get to those kind of games, whether it's the World Series or a Super Bowl or, a, you know, NBA Finals, you find out how many distant relatives you have in life because people find you, trust me. Um, and that was at home. And I remember, actually, we came to Bill Walsh after a couple of days of the, the week of the game like on Tuesday, and said, can we go in the hotel a day early instead of going in on Saturday? Can we go in Friday? Um, we wanted to get away because it, it was crazy. And I, I don't wish that on anybody. People always insist that, you know, there's never been a home Super Bowl. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Stanford was closer than Candlestick. Stanford was like, 
you know, 10 minutes from our Redwood City, Redwood City facility, you know, or the Santa Clara facility that we had. So, you know, that was as much of a home game as any, any Super Bowl ever played. Was there a defensive lineman that gave you the most trouble? Um, there's some really good ones. You know, I, it's usually, it's, you know, honestly, for most linemen, there's always one guy that sort of, you, you know, you don't struggle with, but from a style standpoint, it's a tough matchup, you know. Um, guys that I played against that I think are unbelievable, Joe Klecko, you know, one of the guys I still can't believe isn't in the Hall of Fame yet. Um, I, I had a tough time with him, Steve McMichael from those great Bear teams. I thought was their best defensive tackle, though his teammate Dan Hampton's in the Hall of Fame. Um, Merlin Olson earlier in my career, I don't know if uh, he was still that good or I was just that impressed being an L.A. kid growing up and getting the chance to play against Merlin. Merlin was an actor. Your father was an actor. Did the acting bug ever bite you at all? Not really. You know, I, I was left with with kind of a sour, not sour taste, but a different taste about about that whole, you know, that, that profession. You know, I watched my dad basically sit around the house waiting for the phone to ring. Um, it's a tough deal, and, and he was a working actor. I don't know, you know, how people, you know, handle handle that business because it's, uh, there, there, there's very, very, very talented, great actors, I'm sure still out there, that are better known for being waiters or, you know, car salesmen than they are for being actors. And it's only a matter of, you know, who you know and not so much what you know. Exactly. It seemed like the Los Angeles Rams, all those guys went into the acting profession back in the day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, them and the Dodgers. You know, I think uh, I used to get to go to Dodger games when I was a little kid because my dad, who was always, you know, in the old westerns, would be in that thing either with Roman Gabriel or Ron Paranowski or, you know, one of those former players. So we'd get tickets. It was, it was, it was a great connection to sports. It was even working that way back then. What is the reason you think that you're not in the Hall of Fame? Um, yeah, I really don't know. That's, to me, that's a definition of something I got absolutely zero control over. I think part of it is, there's a fairly wide held um belief by people that should know better that you know that offense was one thousand percent you know just talented skill players and that any any you know any half of a half a dozen or so trained cattle could have played offensive line in front of those guys um that it really didn't matter and that it wasn't a matter of the people were blocking or opening the holes. And, you know, to a degree, um, we were also, we're not the most loved group in the league. So, you know, we, we realized sort of playing for Bill, playing for Bob McKittrick, our line coach, and doing some of the things we did. And if you look at it, we were responsible for a lot of the blocking changes and rule changes that came up, came to be during the 80s and the 90s, were as a result of some of the things that Hey, we noticed in the playbook it wasn't illegal. So if you could do it, we did it. And, you know, it, it became a business decision for us in that, you know, if we had to choose between your health and the health of one of our guys, you'd be a distant second. And I think a lot of that was held against us. That's why you don't see a lot of 
multiple Pro Bowl linemen um, from those days with the Niners. I think three or four is about the most anybody was managed to get. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the 49ers Hall of Famers on offense from that time. You've got Rice, you've got Montana, and mm-hmm. I can't think of anyone else. And you were the dominant offense of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. I think eventually they may get Roger in there. Um, and I've never had it, not that I've asked for it to be explained to me, but I would be interested to see the, the argument as to, you know, why there isn't at least one of the, I guess you'd have to say probably eight of us that were through that period of the, of the 80s. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, talking to Roger. Early 90s. You're right. Talking to Roger Craig, talking to Ricky Waters, they don't get it either. They go, okay, we won all those games. What, who do they think did it? I mean, again, you yeah. had you had uh, Jerry Rice, you had Montana, and you had Steve Young towards the end of the 80s, early 90s. But, again, you needed blocking. You needed the running backs. They forgot about those guys. Well, they, they, they it was thought of as a a tricky offense, as an offense that, you know, and they, they just don't know any better. I, I always challenge people. I said, well, do me a favor. From 83, 83, 84 on, Look at where that team ranked in rushing and tell me why it's a finesse offense. Tell me why it was all done with smoke and mirrors and we were fooling people and using the pass as the run. <laughs> Look at the rushing stats. And, you know, as a as a team, we ran the ball as good as anybody in that era. But, you know, sometimes when it comes to the media – and that's what votes on it. That's who does it. Um, perception becomes reality. And part of the problem is now with ESPN and with the NFL Network, these guys promote themselves, and it seems like unless you're part of that team, it's hard to get in. Yeah, I guess. I guess. It's for the life of me, I've never really – I got a little involved with Mr. Mr. DeBarlo. Uh, I think that's one of the, one of the really crazy things, um, that he's not in there. And none of us is perfect, but last time I checked, he should be right there, like I said, in his uh, NFL films, uh, docudrama, whatever you want to call him. Um, you know, he should be right there next to the other owners that have five Super Bowl trophies, individual owners, of which there are absolutely none. The Hall of Fame went to him and said, we'd like a donation for the Hall of Fame. He said, I'll be glad to give you a donation, but I don't want to do it till after I'm in because I don't want it to look like I'm buying my way in there. And now all of a sudden, the guy from New Orleans, Benson, donates the money. And I wouldn't be surprised if he gets up going in in the next year or two. Oh, there'll be guys, there'll be guys, absolutely, that that go in before somebody that's done things that, that Eddie did. But, you know, like I said, we weren't the most popular. You know, we either won because uh, we fooled people or he won because, uh, you know, Eddie overpaid us or overtreated us well, whatever. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of fun at everyone else's expense. And at some point in time, I guess people get laughs. I think you uh, went through what the Patriots are going through now. They've been so successful over the last 15 years that teams think that it's because they're cheating, it's because of this and that. It's they don't realize it's a great run organization. Yeah, there, I guess there is a little bit of symmetry there. 
when it comes to those organizations. Um, you know, plus also that that's never that that whole Hall of Fame thing. That's not something you lobby for. I don't care how other people handle it. Um, you know, I I agree with with Harry Carson, who basically told them all to go to hell right before they all decided that oh well, we're sorry and they voted him in. <laughs> no, you're absolutely you're, right. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, they can all go to hell. I could care less. The ones you that know, feel- I, I I worry about Eddie. I worry about Roger. You know why guys like that aren't recognized? But yeah, you know, I didn't care about personal recognitions when I was playing, much less now. The ones I feel bad for are the older guys, like the Jerry Kramers, or you take the guy from the Packers. Billy Houghton was the all-time leading receiver and retired. He can't get in because he was the first head of the NFLPA. And those poor guys have waited their whole lives. Why put these guys in after they die when they can't enjoy it? Yeah. Oh, you're right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you ask the average fan, hell. Well, the players would be a bad thing, bad group to ask because they don't know anything um, about history of the game. But you ask most fans, the real hardcore fans, they would swear up and down that Jerry Kramer's in the Hall of Fame. Oh, exactly. And then they put his teammate in, Dave Robinson, who just happened to be on the board of the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago over him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, so it's, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a way to work this system. So what do you think of the new stadium in San Francisco? I love it. I love it. I'm happy, uh, I'm happy for everybody involved. There's going to be a Super Bowl there. Um, you know, I kind of feel a little piece of me, you know, feels bad for the, 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 the real hardcore long-term fans that when these changes happen for stadiums and stuff, it, you know, the NFL price has priced the real fan out of the game. The one that built the game and helped them build the game, they price those people. They can't afford, you know, $30,000 per, per ticket for a seat license or even 10,000 a ticket. So it's a, it's a shame. They're, they're unbelievable facilities. And I think that Super Bowl will be a, it'll be a stunning place to have a game. I want to thank our producer, Soundman Extraordinaire Dave Oles for another great job. I'd like to thank our guests, former Chicago Cubs and Los Angeles Dodger coach and manager, Joy Malfitano and former San Francisco 49er, Randy Cross. Thanks for listening to sports and torts here on talkzone.com.